Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. Started by Potter Gotuma and me, Paul Doran, in Belfast in 2011. And we still love it. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. two stories on this week's podcast, one from our Zoom days and one from our most recent black box event with a live audience. So let's get at it. First up is Richard O'Leary. Richard's been coming to 10 by 9 for years and if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll have heard many of his stories. He told this one in February via Zoom when we had teamed up with the Roe Valley Arts Centre in Limavati. The theme was in sickness and health. One year ago, in person, at the Vaux Valley Arts Centre in Limavady, I told a love story, a story about me being in love. I revealed how on this very same day, 32 years ago, the 11th of February, 1989, I had gone on a romantic date, a memorable romantic date in Belfast during the Troubles. How could I forget it? Because it wasn't my date with a Protestant, a Northern Protestant. When you come from the south of Ireland, from a Catholic background, and you go on your first ever date with a Northern Protestant, you remember the date. Three days after that first date was St. Valentine's Day. On Valentine's Day 1989, I received in the post a lovely surprise, a Valentine's card. Last year, I showed the audience the card, the romantic card for my three-day-old love interest, with the endearing words, Valentine, there is no hiding my love. That Valentine's night, my date was coming to take me out on a second date. I was in a tizzy. I was in a tizzy because I hadn't sent them a Valentine's card. What do you do when your hot day is about to turn up on Valentine's night and you didn't send the card? You improvise. So I had a route around my student belongings and I found a card, this postcard. Okay, it's not a traditional Valentine's Day card, but there's an attractive young man on the front. I was young and attractive once. And there were birds and stars in the sky. The young man is down on one knee, which is probably premature after three days. But with a bit of imagination, this could be a romantic Valentine's card. On the reverse side, I wrote, February the 14th, 1989, thinking of you, Mervyn, from a not so secret admirer. My DIY Valentine's card went down surprisingly well. Last year, I didn't finish my story. So maybe you're wondering what happened next. Roll on. 15 years to 2004. We were still together, but Mervyn and I had moved to Hollywood, Hollywood County Down. That's when Mervyn proposed to me. When Mervyn proposed to me, I took some time before I responded. I delayed. I must have delayed all of 10 seconds before I said, yes, yes, I thought you were never going to ask. But where would we get married? At that time in Northern Ireland, there was no legal marriage available to same-sex couples. There wasn't even civil partnership. If we wanted to get married, it would have to be a 
do-it-yourself marriage. Fortunately, Mervyn was very good at DIY. He spoke to his rector in our local Anglican Church of Ireland parish. Our rector knew us well as a couple, and he said he'd be honored to do the ceremony. But there was one condition. We would have to be very discreet. Mervyn prepared the service sheet for our ceremony. This service sheet, on the cover it reads, the blessing of the relationship of Richard and Mervyn, Saturday the 24th of July, 2004. Inside the church at the altar on that Saturday 17 years ago, I opened the service seat. It reads at the top, the gathering of friends and family. For my family on my side, there was only my sister from England. I didn't tell the rest of my family. My family was not gay affirming. On Mervyn's side, there was none of his family. We were joined by a dozen friends. The rector read, beloved people of God, We've come together in the presence of God to witness and bless the covenant of love and fidelity which Mervyn and Richard have made with each other. On the service sheet, we came to the section called Intent. Our rector asked me, Richard, will you share your love and life with Mervyn, your wholeness and your brokenness, your joys and your sorrows, your health and your sickness, your riches and your poverty, your success and your failure, and be faithful to him for so long as you both shall live. I answered, I will. At the end of the ceremony, Mervyn and I signed our certificate. Not the civil register. The state did not recognize our commitment. Nor did we sign the parish register. The bishop, he didn't approve of fairies. We signed our own certificate. Mervyn drew it up. He had it even printed on cardboard. I told you it was very good at DIY. This certificate, it reads, this is to certify that George Mervyn Kingston and Richard Paul O'Leary celebrated the solemn blessing of their relationship with a public ceremony in the presence of their family and friends conducted by an authorized officiant, Saturday 24th of July, 2004, signed by Richard Paul O'Leary. Mervyn told me we should keep this certificate because if either of us died, we had no legal proof that we were partners. Maybe our own DIY certificate would be better than nothing as evidence of the existence of our relationship. After the ceremony, we came back to our own home, this house for a celebratory drink. My sister, she'd early gone into the nearby town of Bangor to do some shopping. And in this shop, she saw for sale pairs of champagne drinking glasses. There were pairs of glasses, each with the image of a bride and a groom. And my sister, she asked the shop assistant, could she have just one glass from one set, a glass with the image of a groom? And then she asked, could you have another glass from a second set, also groom? Didn't she come out of that shop and banger with a pair of champagne glasses to grooms? That's how we came to have these lovely champagne glasses with two grooms painted on them. Mervyn and I had something to celebrate. Our not legal, unapproved DIY wedding. We had made a lifelong commitment to each other. That day in that church, when I said I would share with Mervyn his love and life, 
his riches and poverty, his health and his sickness, so long as we both should live, I believed I knew what I was saying. At that time, 2004, I was a high-flying academic at Queen's University Belfast. But I didn't tell anyone at work that I had a same-sex partner or that I got married or DIY marriage. Four months after our ceremony, I submitted an application to the university. This application form to the Queen's University of Belfast, 2nd of November, 2004. Application for unpaid career break. Explanation for requesting leave, family caring responsibilities, partner with terminal cancer. I was learning the meaning of in sickness and in health. Thanks so much, Richard. What a true heartbreaker. It's great to hear your voice again, though. And you can watch Richard telling his story on our YouTube channel. Most of our Zoom stories are up there. Richard hasn't been to 10 by 9 for a while as he's been busy preparing a one-man show called Border Ferries. I went along to see it recently and he was, as you'd expect, quite brilliant. And we will be back in Roe Valley in the new year. Check out the website 10by9.com for details. All our 2022 dates are there. Okay, back to the black box and our live audience. It was October and the theme was shock. And the storyteller, well, it's me. I'm pretty sure I told a lie in order to get the job. So when I started work at the Lord's Tavern pub in St. John's Wood in London, if there was karma, then I should have been punished with a dreadful experience. Instead, it was one of the most glorious summers I ever had. It was actually my first time on the business side of a bar. It was a fairly typical, fairly soulless, modern London pub in an expensive residential area. It was nothing like the Mayfair pub I would work in a year later, which did have genuine character and really was upmarket and was frequented by big names with sky-high prices for homemade tomato soup, which actually came out of a Heinz tin. <laughs> but back to the Lord's Tavern. It was, as you might imagine, attached to Lord's Cricket Ground. And as I was utterly indifferent to what to me was barely a proper sport, I never got too excited when a member of the England team came in for a pint. It took what seemed like ages to get to the pub from where I was staying, a walk to Highgate, the Northern Line, connect to the Jubilee Line to get to St John's Wood, then a 10 minute walk past the Army Barracks, the Regent's Park Hotel and the Cricket Ground. The hours were pretty grim too, start at 10.30 for an 11 o'clock opening, shut again at 3 and open at 5 until 10.30 at night. Clear up and then trek away home again. But we weren't open on Sundays, so that was a bonus. On match days, it was mad busy non-stop for every moment that we were open. We even had the joy of the annual Eton Harrow cricket game when some of the older boys would nip in for a pint. Future Prime Ministers for all we knew, and to be fair, unfailingly polite. John Hurt even nipped in for the odd time, half a wholesome from what I remember. <laughs> but it was the other times that were the best, when there was no match on and we were just a local pub with our regulars. There was Harry, an elderly Persian Jew, who had retired and sold his jewellery business. He sometimes came in with his son, who was clearly a disappointment to him. There was Martin and Mick, who were always together, but were emphatically not a couple. <laughs> Even if they went on holidays to Madeira together. There were the ground staff, who would have a few pints at lunchtime and then again after work, every day. And then there was the staff. There was me, Fanula from Cork, both of us in London for the summer, 
There was Bob, the cellar manager, who looked after the stock. And on top of that, there was a living couple who managed the place overall. How it ever made money bewilders me. But I want to tell you about Tina. She was the last to join the team, and she just breezed in one day and asked if there was a job going. And there was. Tina was tall and statuesque. She seemed to be about six feet tall. She had a breathy voice and a high-pitched laugh. Marilyn Monroe with a North London accent. She never walked as such, but she moved gracefully on the balls of her feet, despite wearing high shoes, and she never moved at any great speed. She was always well-dressed, and all her clothes seemed to have bows and ribbons and frills. Her blouses were always buttoned up to the neck. She was no Barbara Windsor. And her skirts came to below the knee, but they were always tight, and maybe that was what restricted her movement and slowed her down. <laughs> she had a bounteous head of hair that covered much of her face, dyed the whitest of white blonde, and stretched all down her back. She was never seen without full makeup, including the essential blood-red gash of lipstick. She wasn't equipped to do any of the heavier work involving crates or bottles, and she spent ages just chatting to customers, but we all adored her. She would tell us about going to West End nightclubs and meeting minor celebrities. She was a bit of a party girl. From memory, she didn't work too many hours. She lived in Kilburn with her Irish parents. She was a hugger, and when she hugged, she gave out a little squeal of delight. She was so brimming over with affection and genuine interest in people, and she always came into work with a smile. Old men loved her, and the Colonel Blimp types who ran the cricket ground were always inviting her in to watch a game in the VIP area. She generally took them up on it, and we would join her during our break, and she would be quite merry. Even when pissed, though, she was the same lovely, warm human being. It wasn't a facade that she had. When stocks started to go missing and the books weren't balancing, the managing couple were forced to investigate. There was no question of it being Tina, and it wasn't. And there was no question that it could be me or Fanula, because we were Irish and too stupid. <laughs> An actual quote from the manageress. <laughs> Of course, it turned out it was the cellar manager, Bob, who was behind it. Obviously smart enough to steal because he was English, but not smart enough to not get caught. And he was fired. The big drama of the summer. But at the end of that summer, it was time to say goodbye. We had a small party in the pub. The regulars hired a strippogram for me. This was the 1980s. But what a waste of money. But they also had bought me a cricket bat, which they all signed and which I still have somewhere. And I kept in touch with many of them, including Martin and Mick, who you remember weren't a couple, just friends who went on holiday to Madeira together. And actually, they really weren't a couple. I also kept in touch with Tina, though she wasn't one for letter writing. But a few years later, I was in London for Christmas, and we all met up at her house for drinks. And just like in the pub, she was well turned out, moved around the room on her tiptoes, ensuring drinks were topped up. Then we went out to a pub, which seemed weird on a Christmas night. That was the last time I saw Tina. I got a letter from Martin, which wasn't unusual, he was the letter writing type. He said Tina had died and he and Mick went to the funeral. Some of the old regulars had also gone. It turned out Tina had drowned in her bath. She'd been washing that shock of blonde hair and had collapsed. She'd been having fainting fits. I was stunned. It was too late to get to the funeral. I sent a card to her parents. And I thought a lot about Tina and it struck me there was always something frail and vulnerable about her. I couldn't put my finger on. She never seemed particularly healthy, not, certainly not fit, and she had a few of those fainting spells at work. And that glamorous facade, 
Well, if you look closely, you can see the heavy makeup was covering bad skin or maybe causing the bad skin. Her hair was dried out from excessive years of dying. She could have been 24 or 40, it was impossible to say. Her clothes were actually more Mary Poppins than Marilyn. She was often late. She served one drink at a time while the rest of us would be pouring a pint to empty in an optic and changing the keg all at the same time. When the customers who adored her and were flattered by her attentions would offer to buy her a drink, she was quick to take them up on it and would pour herself a wee G&T, which was kept discreetly at the end of the bar. She was frequently tipsy by the end of a shift. How much of her face had I ever really seen, between hair expertly positioned to conceal and makeup heavily applied? Would I have even recognised her as she came in with her hair tied back and her face scrubbed clean? I think about Tina whenever I think about London. I can still conjure up her voice and see her moving behind the bar and giggling with customers. She was in so many ways the perfect person for a pub. So when I have my pint at the end of 10 by 9 this evening, it's in honour of Tina, the big-hearted peroxide blonde from the Lord's Tavern. You are sadly missed, Tina, even to this day. And that is it this week from the 10 by 9 podcast. We love 10 by 9 and always will. But if you can help us to keep it going through the next while, you can donate monthly via Patreon or make a one-off donation at PayPal. There are links at the website 10 9com We're so grateful to everyone who has given. And a big shout out to our continuing patrons, Michael Pendergast, Jane Prendy, Darius Whelan, Jacqueline Gale, Samara Pitt, Matthew Mercer, David Laverty, Linda Faith Kelly, Gita Meaton, Damien Stone, Ashley Hunter, Katie Whitehead, The Killicks, Brian McGuire, Melanie Leeser, and Beck Aiken and family. Thanks very much to each of you, and also thank you for everyone who listens. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with the next podcast soon. For now, though, bye bye. <laughs>